Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Mind on Mental Health podcast. My name is Andy Dean, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker. And today I am talking to Katie Gaffney, who is a registered dietitian, and Lauren Brader, who is a licensed professional counselor and a senior primary therapist at Penn Medicine Princeton House Behavioral Health's Emotional Eating Program in Princeton, New Jersey. Today we're going to be talking about three triggers that are sort of unique to the coronavirus situation and a little bit about how to manage them, specifically for people who are struggling with an eating disorder as well as a co-occurring mental health issue. So what I did here is Lauren, Katie, and I had a conversation for a while before the podcast kind of kicks in, and we hit on a lot of points, but we didn't really talk about too many of them in great detail at first. So to save some time, I'm kind of kicking the conversation in right as we start to dive in into a little bit more detail on some of these topics. So I hope you guys find this helpful and enjoy the podcast. You guys actually just brought up a ton of great points, and I'd I'd like to just ask you a little bit more, get into a little more detail about something that I never really thought about was the grocery store could be a real trigger for people's anxiety if they happen to struggle with some kind of an eating disorder. And now there's like a compounding anxiety because the grocery store it's not the same as it used to be. You know, you have to wear your mask and you have to wear your gloves. And it's one of the few places you're sort of, quote unquote, allowed to go. So there's like a compounding anxiety now when people are going to the grocery store. There's like that anxiety that uh, people who don't really struggle with eating disorders probably feel when they go to the grocery store. But then if you do have a struggle with an eating disorder, you have like this additional anxiety that may have always been present when you when you're going shopping for food. So do you guys have any tips or like anything that anything that you recommend for uh patients to or clients to manage that at the moment? Our program really focuses on the use of DBT coping skills to try and support clients through working through their eating disorder. So mm-hmm. a, a component of that would probably be doing some type of grounding technique prior to leaving the house mm-hmm. and having, I think, a really solid cope ahead plan as to what that trip would look like and to how they would implement grounding in in the store. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, after perhaps doing a meal planning session with Katie, they might sit down and say, okay, this is what my, my meal plan consists of for the week, then really breaking down, okay, this is what I might need from the store. So they have that going in. It's not like we're going and trying to figure out while we're in that environment what I then may need Mm -hmm. food-wise because already the anxiety of food and then the the store on top of that is going to make, you know, that, I think, choice ability even less accessible. But, you know, also I think emotionally getting into a place of, reminding themselves and doing grounding scripts and containment scripts, you know, this is, I'm not in any immediate danger, you know, particularly for, for clients that struggle with a history of trauma. I think the meal planning component can be helpful for sure, because in addition to maybe the anxiety that comes with making this trip period and thinking on your feet and thinking, what do I need in the moment as you're balancing grounding practices and and trying to cope with being at the store can be really hard to do 
both. Mm-hmm. So taking maybe a survey and being mindful of what one needs ahead of time. And one step further, which is if there's a grocery store that one feels more comfortable with, then maybe it's writing out the list in the order that it shows up in the store mm-hmm. to reduce the time that's needed in the store or to perhaps reduce um, having to travel throughout the store too much. I mean, it sounds like essentially what both of you are saying is there might just be uh, a little more planning involved, you know, planning in terms of like really concrete, what do I need from the store? And then Katie, you had just said, is there like an optimal way for me to go about getting the stuff from the store in terms of where everything physically is in the store? But then also planning before you go in terms of, you know, what coping skills work for you? How can you get yourself in the right frame of mind before you head out? But also, um, are there things you can do when you're actually in the store that might help to kind of uh, regulate your emotions? Yeah, we would probably have a strong conversation on two ends. One, making sure you are not in your eating disorder mind when you're going shopping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Disorder mind is either going to grab all you know the, my my trigger foods that I'm going to binge on. Or eating disorder mind is going to avoid all, you know, the foods that I know are a a part of my meal plan. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, reflecting on, okay, who's going shopping right now? Myself or my eating disorder. Interesting. So can you explain to me? (laughs) No, 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 not me. Can you explain to the people listening what the eating disorder mind is? Because I definitely know what that is. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm being sarcastic, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I like to characterize an eating disorder and looking at it from two different trajectories. One, there's the behaviors. And Mm -hmm. two, there's the thinking. I think you can still be active within an eating disorder and not be engaging in any eating behaviors if the thinking is still active. Agreed. Mm -hmm. So if I am constantly looking at my food from the lens of my eating disorder, I'm sizing it up, I'm assessing it, I'm, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a level of control around it, even if behaviorally I'm not restricting or I'm not binging or I'm not over-exercising. So there's two different components to an eating disorder that might be slightly different, you know, than other behaviors that we we target in treatment. Mm -hmm. So the eating disorder mind is something that we, you know, it's very similar to the idea of wise mind for those that have been oriented to DBT. So we have our rational thinking brain that, you know, accesses facts of scenarios that go on throughout our day. Mm-hmm. Our emotional thinking brain, which is, you know, what are our impulses, our urges, what's going on emotionally, and then hopefully we access the wise mind, you know, in moments of distress or when we're feeling impulsive. And that mm-hmm. really is a combination of the two so that we can make the most effective, um, healthy decision for ourselves in the moment. Mm-hmm. For those that struggle with an eating disorder on the emotional end, our eating disorder is a voice that is a contribution to our behavior and that all or nothing way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So I might walk into the grocery store and my eating disorder is saying, okay, I'm only allowing myself three items or can't look at, you know, the snacks. Sure. I might still have my three meals at the end of the day, and yet my eating disorder dictated the entire process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What mindset are we aiming 
to be in when we're going to the grocery store. Not eating disordered mind, but... Wise mind, because our program is founded and under the, the foundation of dialectical behavioral therapy. So uh-huh. we would encourage wise mind. Okay. And again, that's when you sort of have like a healthy balance between your rational mind and your more emotional mind. Right. I can look in on my rational mind. I would review my meal plan that I created with Katie. Mm-hmm. My emotional mind might be, okay, I'm incredibly anxious around this fruit, this fruit, this fruit, this fruit, and this fruit. But I wise mind might say, okay, let me try and approach this fruit. It's not as anxiety provoking for me. I still need a fruit because of my meal plan. Mm-hmm. So I'm taking into mm-hmm. account both minds and still being able to meet the needs and goals of, of my recovery. I think of when we're in wise mind or eating the, the space that folks are, are trying to move towards. Um, and I say move towards and not necessarily arrive at, cause that can um, put a lot of pressure, especially in the beginning of recovery, but mm-hmm. towards a place where eating is balanced and flexible. Right. I guess one of the other things you had brought up before, I think it was Katie, is that in the the current climate, since this is kind of the theme of what we're talking about today, we talked about how the grocery store can have like this additional anxiety now. But the other thing that I heard you mention was sort of these new maybe social influences. And I think I know what you're talking about because I've seen them too. It's like, uh, you know, we're all home. Now's the time. Start this thirty-day mm-hmm. uh, workout plan, or there's never been a better time to, you know, order HelloFresh and and get these healthy uh, food options, or to change your diet. Or and there's a lot of pressure right now to be doing things to improve yourself, and oftentimes that can take the form of like exercise and nutrition, or like you know, learning a new language or whatever. None of the things that I'm doing, but I do think that there can be a, there's been a heavy focus on like the exercise and nutrition uh, end of this. So how do you see that kind of affecting people? Oh, great question. So while there is a kernel of truth to the notion that food can impact mental health mm-hmm. and movement for those who have access to it and who are able to do so, um, can potentially have benefits on the other side of the spectrum. And on the additional perspective is that it places a lot of pressure on people. And regardless, eating disorder or not, I think especially for folks with an eating disorder and co-occurring mood disorders, it could be overwhelming and it can almost produce a shutdown kind of response of, Mm -hmm. well, gosh, well, I'm, you know, barely able to manage my day-to-day and recreating a routine for myself, let alone um, begin a high-intensity interval training workout, right? Or um, revamping the things I eat or elaborating on my cooking skills and making (laughs) Chef Ramsay jealous, right? right? Like, it's, it's, it's not effective to make broad, sweeping recommendations on what people should do. Mm -hmm. Right. The should is kind of a red flag kind of word. Right. So not everybody's schedule is the same. There are people balancing childcare, um, being in therapy, 
in general can be exhausting. Um, Mm -hmm. If someone is working um, where they have to like show up to their physical place of work, that can be a stressor. If they're not working, that can feel overwhelming as well. So if we're adding in an additional should and it's not effective for the person that can compound that shame of, Oh, am I doing enough? Or how does that, you know, how do I stack up in terms of my maybe self worth? The idea that health has to look a certain way for every person Mm -hmm. doesn't hold up in real life Mm -hmm. as, and this, you know, our current circumstances are, a great example that we're all in the same storm, but we might be on different boats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, I mean, it, it's such great. It's such a great point. Um, I feel like so many of the things we talk about on here, it comes back to like social media being the devil. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. Like you, you scroll through, you know, your, your Facebook feed or your Instagram feed or whatever. Um, and you could see, you know, in a matter of 10 minutes, 10 to 15 different, you know, home workouts or uh, nutrition plans or, or whatever the case may be, you know, lose 10 pounds in 10 days, all that stuff. And I feel like that could be overwhelming for anybody and bring on like those feelings of, of guilt and shame. You know, I'm not doing enough. I'm just stuck in the house all day and I'm all I'm really doing is maintaining and taking care of the, my kids and whatever. But like if you are managing to take care of your kids right now, and I'm a little biased when it comes to this, uh, then you're doing great. Like this constant pressure to improve yourself and do all these other things while we're sort of in this unique and strange and, you know, in a lot of cases, horrifying situation. It's just crazy to, to be putting so much of an emphasis on, you know, this constant improvement or this constant pursuit of something. Uh, so I feel like it's overwhelming for anybody, let alone people that struggle already struggle with an eating disorder. Yeah. I think it's important to recognize, you know, when we're, when we're in a perhaps more balanced mental health state, we can have a discerning eye to basically come to the conclusions that listen as a, as a working parent right now, or, you know, based on the restrictions that I have financially right now, this is not accessible to me. This is not accessible to me. However, if you are struggling with depression, anxiety, eating disorder, behavior, history of trauma, which I think in and of itself, a history of trauma is almost this state of social isolation is in some ways traumatic in and of itself. So it's really recompounding those symptoms. We don't have that differentiation. It's an all or nothing thing. I'm either meeting these standards that I'm seeing on Facebook or Mm -hmm. on the news or whatever it may be, or I'm failing. Right thus perpetuating the cycle of depression mm-hmm. or the cycle of anxiety. Mm-hmm. There could potentially be space to customize what we see on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, so what communities we're a part of or who we're hearing from. For I'm using Instagram as an example, which kind of places me on a certain timeline of <laughs> social media platforms, but I'll, I'll use that one as an example. Me too. Um, yeah. Is, are you seeing primarily thin white bodies that are able-bodied on your mm-hmm. Instagram feed? Mm-hmm. Right. And do you fit that demographic? Mm-hmm. Do you not fit that demographic? Who are you seeing? Who's being represented? 
because disordered eating and eating disorders can impact anybody. They don't necessarily discriminate against socioeconomic status or Mm -hmm. race or gender expression or region. In the wellness industry, a lot, there's a lot of representation given to, you know, if I'm going to be honest, like white women on the thinner side of the weight spectrum, right? And so if you're not a white woman on the thinner side of the weight spectrum, then it, it can be challenging. Mm-hmm. And and for folks who are in that demographic, it can also reinforce this idea of, oh, okay, like I have to stay in this space or I must not stray from this space. So that um, those kind of stereotypes that we might see either explicitly or um, discreetly um, can impact everybody. Mm-hmm. So um, that the social media component and who we see represented. Um, I think I could just barely like scratch the surface of it. Again, I think that it is important. I think Katie started to kind of speak to this is that DBT tries to really reinforce this idea of dialectics, that there isn't Mm -hmm. something that's good or bad. So I think it is important that we're also not getting into a place where we're just observing the cons of social media, Mm -hmm. you know, there, there is a sense of connectivity that I, I understand social sure. media, media might be giving people right mm-hmm. now. I think it's more about the discerning factors of, you know, what am I choosing to look at mm-hmm. and being mindful of messages that we might be receiving via mm-hmm. our peers on social media or ads we might be seeing on social media. There's so many influences. So just trying to really be mindful around yeah, no, that's a, a really good point. And um, Mark Zuckerberg, if you're listening, I didn't mean to call social media the devil. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're right. Like, there could be, um, there could definitely, I mean, there are obvious benefits to social media as well. Like you said, like the connectivity or, uh, you know, we could really be um, surrounding ourselves and staying in touch with people who could actually be a really positive influence on us. So essentially, we've, we've already talked in, in some detail about two changes in terms of how the coronavirus may be affecting people with eating disorders. One was sort of the, the grocery store topic that we talked about in terms of that compounding anxiety that people have now. Then we also talked about all the different messages we might be getting in terms of the workouts and the nutrition stuff and the eating and the losing weight and all this. And then the third thing that you guys brought up in the first part of our conversation was how eating disorders are are very isolating and some people can kind of go to one end of the spectrum and tend to engage in those behaviors when they're alone but then there's kind of an opposite end of that spectrum where it might be more of when they're around people Um, so i guess i'm wondering if we can just dive into that a little bit more um, and how that is being changed right now due to the coronavirus yeah, so to the the isolation end of things, what what I'm really seeing quite a bit of is those that struggle with an eating disorder because of the social distancing, there's a lot more alone time. Mm-hmm. They tend to be more stuck in inside themselves, more intrafocused. Mm-hmm. So their their distortions, their eating disordered thinking is much more powerful right now. 
there's not as many interruptions to that in terms of the structure of a job or time out with friends or something to pull themselves out of those thoughts. So right now I do feel that the isolation component is almost increasing or can certainly mm-hmm. increase the dissatisfaction with self and body image, feelings mm-hmm. of worthlessness that, you know, wow, I'm, I don't have a job that I'm achieving at right now. I don't have, you know, relationships that I have access to and can work on promoting right now. What am I doing? You know, so a, a lot of all or nothing thinking around that. So the isolation I think is very much, or can certainly increase the eating disorder way of thinking and that overall mindset. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. It can be really challenging to feel like one is going it alone Mm -hmm. Um, and adjusting to, for example, um, like online support groups or online meal support, you know, it's, it's, it's an adjustment, right? And alongside that, Depending on who the person's living with, um, they can be supportive, they can feel maybe not so safe. So that can either be um, an excellent ally during this time Mm -hmm. or um, depending on their home environment, it can be an additional challenge as people are home more. So um, maintaining the eating piece and navigating that, I think poses, there's an additional challenge right now or challenges right now. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, it's a great point. If you have an excellent support system, you feel very safe at home, then you might be in an, in an okay situation right now, considering that we're all pretty much spending a lot more time at home. But if that isn't the case, then, wow, there's sort of an additional challenge right now because you may be in an environment where you're getting triggered more often. Mm-hmm. Or and around individuals who might have you know, some of those influences that we were talking of before related to social media. So if you Mm -hmm. have family members that are working on dieting or are Mm -hmm. working on Mm over-exercising or whatever it may be, we have that trigger built into our day 24-7. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great point. I mean, again, this is one of those things that, like, I never really even considered before, right? Like, um, if this is something that's a, a problem for you, but you're stuck in a house with someone who's really into dieting or exercising right now. It's almost like being stuck with someone in a house who is using when you're trying to abstain. Yeah. You know, we always make the reference, or at least I know I've made the reference a lot of times in groups that when we're talking about, I guess, substance recovery, we'd say, okay, please try and avoid people, places, things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We can't avoid food. Right. It's a fuel for us. And that in lies, we're basically asking individuals that struggle with eating disorders to face their trigger over and over again, several times a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to face it when they're in the household with others, you know, it's, it's a constant reactivation process which is why I think the eating disorder recovery, you know, is in fact about shaping behavior over a very long length of time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning into the podcast. 
I'm actually going to be putting up a part two with Katie and Lauren where we talk a little bit more about how people can tell whether or not their changing eating habits during coronavirus could be becoming problematic and also talking a little bit more about how to best support a loved one who might be struggling with an eating disorder. So hopefully I'll have that up soon and I hope you guys found this valuable and enjoyed the podcast. Take care. Bye.